Festive greetings. Welcome to episode six of Copy and Circuses. This week I'm talking to my colleague from the University of Kent, Christopher Burden Strevens. Literally just before we recorded this podcast, Christopher received his copy of his new book about Cassius Dio, a historian from the early third century. Christopher's been working on Dio for many years, and naturally, especially with the book having just appeared, now available to buy, we talk a fair bit about Dio, about Dio the person, as well as Dio's history and his work. We'll also be talking about Christopher's own path into the world of classics, how he was actually a relatively latecomer to it, didn't really pick it up as a subject until about the age of 16. We'll talk about how he taught himself Latin, the jump from undergraduate to PhD and the struggles he faced with that, and also talking about something that he's very passionate with, which is public engagement and going out into schools and promoting uh, classics and ancient history to a wider audience. We're also going to be talking more about gaming as this podcast increasingly becomes the official Skyrim fancast, and we'll also be discussing why, if you're going to come up with a good idea, the best place to do it is in a hot tub. So thanks for joining me. It's a great conversation and on with the show. I don't know, this is free app though, the fact that you got your book today. I feel like I'm getting a bit of a scoop, a bit of an exclusive. Oh my, I doubt it. I wish I'd actually brought the copy along with me now. Um, I really do. I picked for the front cover, I picked this fabulous Roman coin from um, about 131 BC. And it's a coin displaying on the reverse Romulus and Remus being suckled by the she-wolf with Faustulus, the shepherd who in the story of Romulus and Remus, you know, looks after them uh, and what have you. And, yeah, I, I really loved working on that edited volume on Early Rome and kind of deconstructing how some of the myths of Early Rome get presented in historians that aren't Livy, basically, because Livy, 1st century BC, kind of Augustan historian, um, his account of the earliest days of Rome's history is considered to be the authoritative account. And Cassius Dio's account, on the other hand, um, written much later than Livy, uh, is not really looked at. So working on the volume was really fun, just to kind of get a very different source and a very different perspective on a period that we think we know very well, or at least from a mythological perspective. So yeah, it was cool. It was good fun. Did you have the new book smell? Yeah. Oh my God. It really <laughs> did. So I remember in my office when you mentioned this, um, I've actually, I don't know what the new book smell is. It's sort of a kind of gluey, yeah. sort of pulpy smell. It's really actually quite unsavoury. But yeah, how are you feeling about your new book as well? Has, well, it, has it, the excitement worn off? Or? I don't know if there really was that much excitement when I got it now in retrospect. It sounds quite bad. I just felt like it was one of those things that it, it took so long to finally come around yeah. into actually being a physical thing that mm-hmm. I could hold that by that point I was, I guess I've hit that point where I'm like, oh, it's just going on the it, It's now. just another thing. Um, um, I don't know. My mum was happy to see it. So that's the, that's the important the thing. Same. I, I got three free copies from the publisher and, you know, generous for Brill, as we were discussing earlier. And I'm definitely going to give my mum a free copy because where I'm from, publishing anything in print is seen as really quite crazy, actually. I yeah. mean, it's something that ordinary people where I'm from don't do. And I suspect later on we'll talk a bit more about how I got into classics and... And how hard it was, actually, in many ways, getting into classics. So my mum, you know, my mum, I googled my name the other day, I think. And I'm really junior. But, you know, as an academic, you go to stuff, you publish stuff. 
um, you do book reviews, and that is all available online. So my mum googled my name, and she was like, "Oh my god, my baby!" Uh, and it's just, it's really, it's really cute. It's lovely. So I'm going to give her a copy of the book, obviously, because yeah. uh, she'll like that. I think I don't know what to write in the dedication. Though. I'm not going to write it in Latin. But yes, you, so you mean you're actually going to write like something in the inside cover? I, I, sus- yeah. I suspect so. I That'd suspect be nice, actually. So. I think that's fine. Nice touch, actually. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine brought me a book for my birthday last year. It was just like a Star Wars book, but it was quite nice because it was like it was uh, it's a Star Star Wars book about Princess Leia, and then he wrote like a story about Princess Leia, and he wrote on the inside of it like to David. It's the Princess Leia film that we never got. Carrie <laughs> Fisher passed away. But, like the fact, like writing something inside the book is very it nice is, touch. It really is, and yeah. those and dedications and like and um, cover notes and slip notes and all the rest. They all ha- they all kind of have a story attached to them as well, which yeah. is really really lovely. I don't, if, I don't know if you've been into a bookshop before, and you know, obviously bought secondhand books and things, and you'll often see dedications inside or ones that have survived that haven't been written in pencil. Um, I've got a copy of The Wind in the Willows at home. And I think it's my in the in the front cover. It says this book belongs to Jan Strevens, my grandfather. And then underneath it, in child's handwriting in pencil, this book belongs to John Strevens, 1955. Uh-huh. And then underneath is this book belongs to, belongs to Victoria Strevens, my sister. And then finally me, this book belongs to Christopher Strevens. So those kind of cover notes and slip notes and dedications and all the rest, they can all tell a lovely story as well. So yeah. I'm definitely going to write one for my mother. I just need to think of what to say. And you, yeah, you're really into Star Wars, aren't you? You're crazy. I'm actually wearing a Star Wars jumper. As well. I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't even notice that. Okay, my, my yeah, my my background with Star Wars is basically falling asleep. I remember <sighs> I remember watching episode one at the cinema and just I was out like a light. It was brilliant. It was like vodka. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, vodka can have different effects on different people, so maybe that's a good good metaphor for uh, different approaches. Well, indeed, of course, <laughs> de gustibus nil despitandum est, and all the rest of it. No accounting for taste. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else there. No, uh, no, no, no. no. That's, I just thought I'd close with Cicero. I'd close that thought off and be a bit of a dick. Okay. How, how though, the book's about mainly about Cassius Dio, right? Yeah. So why Cassius Dio? Why Cassius Dio? Why is why is Cassius Dio like your guy? Because you're part of the wider Cassius Dio network as well. He's he's kind of like your mo- focus, like in the same way. I suppose it's. I guess if people ever think of me, which I don't know if they do, uh, <laughs> when they think of, but like, I suppose like the first thing that comes to mind is Mithras. Yeah. So you're probably getting to a point where I would imagine like you you're you're becoming synonymous with with Dio in some respects. Well, I mean, or maybe Dio's becoming but synonymous that's with perhaps, you. That's, that's <laughs> perhaps aggrandising me slightly more than I deserve. But, okay, so there are kind of two parts to this. One is how I got into Dio, and then the other is why Dio is interesting and why we should read Dio. So I think I'll start with the latter. Cassius Dio is really one of our most important but underappreciated sources for the history of Rome. So Cassius Dio, who is he? He's a dude of Greek extraction. Uh, his family probably have Roman citizenship since the reign of Nero. So we're talking about the 40s and the 50s AD. And he's from Bithynia, um, which is a province, Pontus and Bithynia. It's north coast of modern day Turkey on the shores of the Black Sea. So he's from Bithynia and he writes this enormous history of Rome, which is 80 books long. And he probably starts working on it. Uh, this is disputed, but sometime in the 190s or the first decade of the 200s. And it really is the biggest project of historiography since Livy's enormous um, history of Rome. Livy, again, Augustan historian, writing this enormous, very authoritative history of Rome. It's very fortunate that we have Dio, in fact, because 
we have Livy's early history where he writes this huge history of Rome from Romulus and Remus up to Augustus. But basically, Livy's sections which deal with the late Republic, so kind of mid second century BC through to the reign of Augustus, Livy's is gone. We don't have it. We have uh, an epitomised, so an abridged version written much later. On the other hand, Cassius Dio, the situation is quite the opposite. For Cassius Dio, we have very little of his early history. It's very fragmentary. But his late Republican narrative is probably our very richest narrative. And of course, the late Republic is a period that students love to read about, that the wider public is interested in. Like Robert Harris has just done his Cicero trilogy of Cicero books. You so, read them? I have. I loved I them. Love them and well. I went and saw them on stage. Oh, have you seen the stage play? Yeah, what did you think of it? It, it? it was good. I really enjoyed it. It was much funnier than I expected it to be. Oh, really? They really bought the humour out with Cicero, in fact. So Cassius Dio's account of the late Republic, but chiefly the years of Cicero, really is the richest that we have. And of course, it's not just that. So, I mean, Dio carries on writing 200 years later than Livy, and he gives us the history of the imperial period right through to the reign of Septimius Severus and basically the emergence of the crisis of the third century. So Dio is a really interesting guy to read. And he's also, he's writing Roman history, but from a very Greek cultural perspective as well. So he's a really interesting source for the history of Greek culture under the Roman Empire, because of course, when Dio is born and when Dio is writing, the wider Greek world is subject to the Roman Empire. So he's a fascinating source, not only for the history of late Republican Rome, but also Imperial Rome and for Greek cultural history as well. So that's why he's cool and why he's fun and why he's interesting. <laughs> and why you should uh, buy the book. Well, um, <laughs> and why we should, well, why we should buy the book. I don't know if I've made that case really, but I got into Cassius Dio really because my PhD supervisor told me. <laughs> and it's a good reason. Though. It's, it's a good reason. I mean, how did you get into Mithras? Just, I, I had never actually asked you this. So. I did my MA dissertation on cults in Ostia, the port uh-huh. of Rome, and Mithras is one of the most, seemingly one of the most popular. Yeah. And I just ended up reading some stuff mm-hmm. to do with the end of the cult. And there was the book by Eberhard Sauer, which was reviewed by Richard Gordon, mm. which Richard Gordon wasn't too keen on. Mm. Uh, we'll put it that way. And he literally ended the review by saying, if somebody's on the lookout for a PhD topic, this would be a good idea. Yeah. So I was like, well, I've, I've enjoyed studying Mithras in, in my MA dissertation. Mm. Why not? Yeah, and, that's, and then it just so happened as well that Luke, uh, Luke Levan here at the department as well, who's my supervisor, had just done a conference on the archaeology of late paganism mm-hmm. and wanted to do a case study which mm-hmm. looked at the decline of a particular cult mm-hmm. mithras is the obvious one because yeah. it's the most or considered to be the most widely persecuted by christianity yeah but if you look at my book then you yes. see that's not indeed the case but yeah back over to you with uh Dio. so i mean my my situation is really quite similar to yours basically i mean the idea was sort of given to me in one way or the other someone mentioned in this case my supervisor look I really want you to engage with Cassius Dio because Cassius Dio is, despite his richness, a very underappreciated source. So I ended up working on Dio because my PhD was attached to a research project called The Fragments of the Roman Republican Orators. Its PI was Catherine Steele, or is Catherine Steele. She's a very, very eminent Roman historian. And that project on fragmentary Republican oratory is really part of a broader current over the last 20 years of looking at fragmentary work. Moving away now from the great authors and the greats, and we're we're turning much more as scholars of literature to fragmentary works. Partly, I I suspect, literally a part of this is because we're running out of stuff to say. (laughs) But also the fragment, I mean, methodologies in dealing with fragments have also improved quite a lot as well. And now we have these big corpora of 
fragments. So the fragments of the Roman historians was released, you know, a, a few years ago, less than a decade, um, headed by Tim Cornell, among others. And the fragments of the Roman historians is such an exciting multi-volume text that basically combed through all our literary texts and found quotations, fragments, citations, paraphrases of all the um, Roman historians that we've lost. So the fragments of the Roman Orators project, which I did my PhD on, that's that's really part of that trend. And it's a very similar kind of project, combing through all of these ancient texts to find quotes and fragments and paraphrases of what people were saying in Republican Rome. Because one of the things we forget about Republican Rome, I think, uh, one thing that students forget is that speeches were happening every day. The main vehicle of political life in ancient Rome was speech. And of all of those Roman speechwriters, of all of those Roman orators, we only have one from that time, and that's Cicero. Even though it was very common to publish your speeches. We know, for example, that Mark Antony published his speeches. We know that Brutus, the assassin of Caesar, published his speeches. Likewise, any number of other people, rhetoric was very highly praised, and oratory was the way that business was done. So that project was looking at compiling these fragments, and my supervisor said to me, look, why don't you work with Cassius Dio? Because Cassius Dio's narrative of the first century BC is so rich, there will be so many fragments and citations and quotations of lost Roman orators in there. Why don't you go have a look? And so that's how I started working on Dio. And that's taken up the last, oh God, six years of my life. <laughs> and I'm really... I, are you sick of him yet? Or are you still... No, I'm not sick of him because his history is so enormous. I mean, in, in its complete form... In its non-fragmentary form, it would have been about a million words long or something ridiculous like that. And there are 80 books of it. It's absolutely huge. So there's always something to surprise and excite. And that's really where the, where the book I've just brought out comes from as well. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about Dio's narrative of the first century BC. And I was supervising an MPhil when I was doing my postdoctoral work at Glasgow. And I had a very, very, very good supervisee, Mass, from Denmark. He's now at St Andrews. And we both got chatting together about Dio's first 20 books, which deal from the history of Rome, really from the days of Aeneas and Romulus and Remus, up to the second century BC. And we said, you know, why is no one in our field, why is no one in Cassius Dio's scholarship looked at the first 20 books. There's so little work done on it. And so we decided to have a short symposium on that, a kind of day-long symposium, emphasis on the on the posium part. And there, was plenty of, <laughs> there was plenty of drinking going on. And we got together a really good group of people and we got a quite small, close-knit group, about a dozen. And we decided to publish our findings. And I'm really, really glad that we did because Cassius, the importance of Cassius Dio's early books is really coming to light actually now and i hope that the volume will be a part of that as well quite a bunch of questions about that actually I know. My, but well my first question i guess is do you feel as though you have gained any understanding of dio the man i mean it's one of those interesting things about when you study somebody in their writings yeah. for so long obviously your focus is the history the presentation yeah. of the history etc do you ever sort of sit there and find yourself just thinking about Dio, the person, and what he was like? And do you ever sort of get this, ever construct this image in your mind of what yeah. he was like? Yeah, so basically, Cassius Dio is a really grumpy old Tory. Um, <laughs> so, and I love him. I, I have a genuine sort of affection for Cassius Dio. It, right at the close of his history, Cassius Dio says, at the end of my political career in 229 AD, I was consul for the second time 
with the Emperor Severus Alexander, but my feet were hurting. I had I re- I got I was getting really bad arthritis in my feet or something like that. So I decided to go home. And this is what he says to go home to Bithynia in Greece. Uh, which is odd because he's been living in Rome for 50 years and he's been working in Rome for 50 years. But he says, I'm going back to my patris, to my fatherland, and I'm going to go rest my feet there. And that's a really, really very tender line, actually. One gets quite emotional thinking about it. Like, he's an old man by this time. He's in his, he's in his 70s, probably. And he's written this, writing this huge work. And he's living through some very turbulent times as well. The two, really, the two 20s, 230s. I mean, basically the one night. His whole political career, there's a horrendous civil war in 193. And Cassius Dio is really one of those who's actually quite lucky to survive because he prosecutes in court Didius Julianus, who is one of the men who will later come to, come to the imperial throne. He's a tyrant, a usurper. And Cassius Dio prosecuted this man in court. And Cassius Dio doesn't suffer his revenge. He survives. Cassius Dio is a very canny political operator. So when Septimius Severus wins the civil war in 193 AD, um, after the assassination of Emperor Emperor Commodus and the end of the the Antonine dynasty, when Septimius Severus wins the war, the first thing Cassius Dio does, and he tells us this, is he writes a kind of laudatory pamphlet to Septimius Severus saying... Here are all the omens and portents that showed you were meant to come to power. So it's a mix of kind of literary artifice mixed with flattery. And it works. Septimius Severus likes it. And he, he writes Cassius Dio back this letter. And Dio tells us that after he gets this letter back from Septimius Severus, the new emperor, saying, I really like your writing. You should write some more. And then Cassius Dio says that after receiving this letter, he's visited by Tordaimonion, by a heavenly heavenly presence which comes to him and tells him to write history so basically his work starts out in 193 because of civil war um because he writes this pamphlet to the new emperor this new tyrant this new usurper saying you were destined to come to power here are the omens and portents and that grows into being a work of history writing so i think that experience did make him a conservative sort of individual he lived through a very unstable time and his conservatism comes across in some very interesting ways as well. His idea of Romanness. Lots of work has been done recently on Dio's view of Romanness. Dio can be extremely prejudiced. I, we teach students, I think, that racism doesn't exist in the Roman Empire. We teach students that because citizenship is granted not on the basis of your race, but on the basis of your achievements or being manumitted or anything like that, we teach a very inclusive idea of Rome. Actually, if you read someone, read the works of someone like Dio, you realise that racism was very alive and well. He hates Syrians, he hates Egyptians, he hates Gauls, he hates Germans. Basically, he really thinks the Roman Empire is Italy and Greece. And those two can meld together just as he has done, coming from Greece, writing in Greek, belonging to a Greek cultural tradition, but also being a Roman consul, a Roman statesman, a Roman provincial governor, and based at the court in Rome. That, that's Dio's vision, of, vision um, of empire, really. And the rest of them, in his view, they can go fuck themselves, basically. <laughs> so he is, he is a very, very, very conservative, and I think very uneasy author. He's very uneasy about his, about his day, and that's really, that comes through in the way he writes history as well. I do, I do feel bad for his feet, though, as well. His poor old feet. That upsets me a bit. One quick question. Would he have 
was he quite close to Severus when Severus was actually in power? Would he? My question kind of stems from just the fact that Severus, in his last years, is basically based in the north yeah. of Britain, yeah. uh, along with his two yes. sons as well. Would Dio have actually come with him to Britain, or would Dio have mainly stayed in Rome? The idea has been suggested, actually. Because it's just, I, I, I've made this point previously, actually, on the podcast, but I find this fascinating that, and this is not an image people have of the Roman Empire, that we have a Roman emperor from North Africa with his two sons yeah. who are half Syri- yeah. Syrian, essentially running the Roman Empire yeah. from York for about five years. Which is incredible when you think about it in those terms. It's, it, I mean, you, I mean, it, it's interesting just quickly though in terms of what you were just saying though about racism and mm-hmm. I, I, I've been talking to my Roman Britain class about this this idea of this balance that we need to establish mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. presenting the Roman world in not the traditional way it's always been mm-hmm. where it's like it's just all white mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people have this idea mm-hmm. that it was when it, when it clearly yeah, wasn't exactly. and it is very multicultural but at the same time that those tensions didn't exist like those mm-hmm. tension words tensions did mm-hmm. exist like mm-hmm. and you have to mm-hmm. you know when we talk about things like representation in the modern world it's kind of mm-hmm. trying to balance that kind of we want to be inclusive as a subject and mm-hmm. i think to be inclusive as a subject we have to acknowledge the fact that mm-hmm. and quite rightly so that like with the mary well there was a whole debate about the video from the bbc i think it was the kind of pulled in Mary Beard about the black soldier on Hadrian's mm-hmm, Wall and this kind of question mm-hmm. of people attack that saying like yeah. there weren't any black soldiers on Hadrian's Wall well they almost certainly probably were yeah. and the video never actually makes the point of trying to say well this is the norm though yeah. it's, but it's given an example of what mm-hmm. could have been but it's just those those, those, those questions are something that really fascinates me but yeah sorry just to go quickly back no, to Dio in, no, in no, I, I, I really I, I think I think we're quite right that there is this odd tension really because we have moved now very much into a, into a phase um, by the time we get to Dio's time, where, as you as you were saying, I mean, the emperor can rule from can rule from Britain, and be from Leptis Magna, and and not in fact have even a particularly long history of Roman citizenship. I think it's really really interesting and exciting, because we have that fact balanced against some very conservative kind of undercurrents on the part of the aristocracy that we don't see unless they write them, basically. We, it's easy to see that the emperor, that this or that emperor is from such and such a place. It's easy to see that this or that emperor is ruling in such and such a place. And that, that very much shows the way that the empire is changing. What we don't see is how people will necessarily feel about this on the ground unless they write it down for us, basically. And Dio gives us one, one perspective. I don't, think he's rep- I don't think he's representative, actually. I think Dio is actually really quite a, cons- quite a conservative. But if you look at the work that's been done on... Um, the membership of the Senate um, in the imperial period, particularly in the Antonine era, what's quite clear is that the Senate has changed really quite radically, even between the, say, the first century AD through to the end of the second century AD. The membership of the Senate changes enormously. So we have this really famous speech from the Emperor Claudius in, I think, 54 AD, where he's um, talking at Lyon in France about um, admitting Gauls to the Senate. And it's a really exciting speech because Claudius' words were transcribed and Tacitus reports them as well. And so we've got that debate in 54 saying, let's admit Gauls to the Senate, for goodness sake. You know, um, we have been settling colonies in Gallic communities now for about 200 years. Well, more than that, actually. If you think about North Italy, North Italy was originally conceived of as part of Gaul, basically. So let's admit Gauls. And then by the end of the second century AD, the non-Greek, say the North African and Hispanic membership of the Senate has grown quite substantially actually. So we're looking at quite significant numbers. Um, so this would have been quite quite visible I think as well. You would have had 
senators from all over the empire by the end of the second century AD, um, not from just a Greek or Italian extraction. <laughs> I, I realize because we're, we're talking a lot about Dio, but in many respects, we, we want to get back to you as and your kind of. Oh, yeah. um, one quick <laughs> question, though, still along the Dio lines, but not focused on Dio himself, is I was just wondering what it, what was it like doing a PhD as part of a wider research project? Because my own PhD was very much just me on my own, like uh-huh. with my supervisor, and, and obviously, like you have colleagues and you mm-hmm. have peers that you interact with, but you were actually part of a mm-hmm. the wider project. What was what was that like? And now, obviously, with the Dio network that you're part of as well Mm -hmm. what's it what was it like working in that kind of situation where you were part of a part of a team doing a phd it was wonderful it was a little bit bewildering at first because i went into my phd straight after doing my undergraduate degree i did have the benefit of doing a four-year undergraduate degree but really my undergraduate degree was in latin and greek and french so i had a very very much philological very language-based background and then i jumped into a research project which was really about ancient history and where the people I was working with were ancient historians, basically, and my interests were mainly philological. So in many ways, I felt a little bit left out in my first year. I really did. And I'm fairly sure my supervisors, the whole team, basically, I'm fairly sure were pretty despairing at me in the first in the first year because I didn't know I didn't know shit. And also (laughs) I was really disorganised. I was really unpunctual. And I had the pleasure of sharing an office. That's one of the perks, be it really, of being part of this project. I had the pleasure of sharing an office with a very brilliant um, woman called Jen. And she had done an ancient history degree and then a ancient history master's and then come into this project. Uh, and she was working on a textbook, a, a handbook of rhetoric, possibly from about the 80s BC, called the Rhetorica Adherenium. And she was she was just like shit hot. She was a machine. And she was so efficient. She was so on the ball. She was so punctual. And I, in comparison, in my first year, was just such a disgrace. Like, I'd come in with, like, wet hair at, like, 11 o'clock and then have breakfast. So I, so I did feel very left out, but that got better, I think. Do, I mean, you might have exp- felt this as well, that your supervisors and the people supervising you were the experts and perhaps you felt, I don't know, a bit shy about speaking up with them. But then by the end of the PhD, you were the expert on mm. what you're writing about and you were able to talk much more confidently, even with your supervisor. Um, I think that's true. I think, I think a lot of people go through that transformation over yeah. the course of a PhD. And I think that's not a bad way to start out in the sense that you want to take on lots of advice. Yeah. I think if you start out a PhD thinking you knew everything there. You, <laughs> then... wouldn't, you wouldn't learn anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and I think but by the end of it, no, you have grown in that confidence and you, you understand. I mean, that's the idea, isn't it? By the end of a PhD, like you are supposed to be one of the people that understands that subject better than anybody well not better than anybody are, okay since we're like kind of <laughs> since we're being recorded we are both kind of smiling uncertainly <laughs> right now being like Barr, i'm not sure i'm an expert in anything but there are people out there that are more of an expert on mythos than me i'll say likewise, that as a caveat likewise on, Cassi- on cassius dio and i work with many of them in this cassius dio network which has been a fantastic initiative for the last three years so after doing the PhD, well while i was doing my phd actually as part of this research project which had the benefits of, you know, sharing an office space, working with people, being able to talk about your work quite a lot, but also suffering quite a lot of pressure, I think, and feeling very left behind in many ways in the first in the first year or so. Um, being while I was doing that PhD on that project, I was invited to join this research network um, because I'd made 
an acquaintance with a very senior Roman historian who was part of this network. And he passed my name on to the organisers and said, look, there's this young chap, he's working on Cassius Dio, maybe you should invite him. Because they were basically looking for young people to be part of the network. So I, I ticked the young box and then got invited in by default. Uh, and we've been working together for three years and we've grown really actually quite close. We're very, very friendly and we're very pally and we read each other's work a lot. We comment on each other's work a lot. Cassius Dio has not enjoyed, say, the the wealth of scholarship that, say, the great historians like Thucydides or Tacitus have. So it's very easy, actually, to strike out and make a name for yourself. And our network, there are about 25 of us, and we are really much of the world's um, expertise, current expertise on Cassius Dio. There is another Cassius Dio project, the, um, the Equipe d'Ionea in France, and they are a separate affair, um, but there is some crossover, there's some bleed between our network and their network, and our aims are actually a little bit different. So working with them has been really special, and our final conference, our closing conference for three years of work together is on Monday. Mm. Um, so I'm currently writing the paper uh, and travelling out to Denmark on Sunday to go and spend uh, our final few days working on Cassius Dio together. It's extremely sad. I was so going to say, is it quite emotional? It's very emotional. It's very, very sad. I'm going to miss them tremendously. At our last conference, we, um, we were working on Greek intellectual culture under the Roman Empire and exploring that through the lens of Cassius Dio. That's what we were working on uh, in Canada in May. And basically, <laughs> basically, we were all sitting in this hot tub um, those, so are all the best ideas uh, exactly <laughs> and we were about three bottles of wine down and we were thinking up more and more ludicrous ways to get research funding so that we could all work together again uh, when this project comes to an end no one has found concrete plans yet but it's it's on the agenda we are going to be together again somehow there's plenty more to be done on Cassius Dio and indeed plenty of avenues and angles that one could explore that aren't just about Dio that, but that begin with Dio um, and could branch out into other areas. Mm. I think we're going to have to uh, propose that we get a hot tub installed for track next year. <laughs> I think a hot tub installation, you can do it for about five grand um, because my partner and I are buying a house at the moment. So we, <laughs> that's something you like, contemplated. The first, thing, <laughs> the first thing we've looked at is hot tub installation <laughs> for the garden. Um, it's completely unaffordable. We're never going to manage it, ever. You know, We'll be broke by the time we pay the solicitor. Um, but yeah, I think it can be done on five grand, just saying. So if there's if the standing committee of track has that in the budget anywhere, then then I'd, I'd have a think. I'll make a note of that for the next the agenda for the next meeting. <laughs> <laughs> this house believes that a hot tub might be a rather nice idea. Discuss. Uh, so right, well, like take me back to the start then. How how why into the the world of classics and ancient history? Oh, God. So I'd say that my interest in classics and ancient history um, started quite late. Uh, I was a re- I really was a latecomer and I was a late bloomer academically in general, in fact. Mm. But um, my curiosity about history as such started very young. My dad loves historical fiction and he used to buy me historical fiction books or I would borrow his historical fiction books. And I, he had this one book, I think it was like... An autobiography, it wasn't of course an autobiography, but it was written as if it were an autobiography of Henry VIII by Margaret George. And it's a big, big, big book. It's one of my favourites. I must have read it about ten times when I was younger. I loved getting, I suppose, you know, behind behind the myth and getting to the man, so to speak, of an ancient individual. And that re- re- historical fiction really started off my interest in, in, in history as such. 
And my dad used to take me also to um, archaeological sites, well, historical sites, you know, English heritage stuff. Dover Castle in particular, we must have gone to about a dozen times. There is a photograph of me as a child, as about a 10-year-old, I think, in one of those um, crusader outfits you can buy from the gift shop in English heritage sites. Um, and, of course, there's the fantastic Roman lighthouse. When I was you know, at, at, at Dover Castle, when I was 10, I thought, what is that ugly building and why is it in such bad repair? Now I think this is a really quite exceptionally well, uh, well-preserved lighthouse. So I got started, I got interested in history when I was young, but classics and ancient history came very late when I was about 16. I'm not from a family that does classics and I'm not from a family that goes to university either. So Latin and Greek were completely out of the question for me when I was at school. And perhaps we can talk more about that later and about, about outreach and public engagement. So it just wasn't an opportunity I had. But I did go to a good grammar school sixth form, just. I think I just scraped in, uh, in the end. And I started doing classical civilization, which was my first exposure, really, to classics at all. I'd never read an ancient text, ever. If you'd asked me who Cicero was, I really wouldn't know. Uh, I just thought, this sounds kind of cool, let's do this. And I really loved it. I thought it was absolutely fabulous doing uh, class civ A-level. And... One afternoon, I remember quite vividly, I was in one of those horrible, you know, um, flat pack mobile things. There's one actually just outside our window. I can see it. I was in one of those silly mobile classrooms that you find where, you know, the school school runs out of teaching space. So they buy this like Ikea classroom and build it outside. I was in one of those and I found this book called The Approach to Latin. It's a, a 1930s school book for use really in prep schools. Um for beginners Latin. And I started working through that just because I thought I'll give it a go. Uh, I was about 16 and I became completely obsessive. I really, I am quite obsessive actually anyway. When I fixate on something, I'm going to bloody well do it. And I would come home and I think I would sometimes be up doing Latin at the kitchen table until about one one or two o'clock in the morning. I was really into it. I loved Latin. And I had some very supportive teachers as well who... Although they weren't teaching me Latin, they had studied Latin at undergraduate level or whatever, so they were able to mark my work from time to time. But really, I was self-taught in Latin for about two years, and I was really excited by it. Then when I applied to do my degree, I thought, I love Latin so much, um, I want to do Latin and Greek for my undergraduate degree. I was going to do law originally, because I thought that's something that you just did. (laughs) Um, But I'm really glad I stuck with classics. So I did Latin and Greek, and... It really went on from there. My 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 ambition to do a law degree continued even while I was doing my classics degree. But then when I started my PhD, I decided, OK, this really is is for me. This is what I'm going to be doing. So I was a, a late bloomer academically in general, actually. I didn't really give a damn about school until I started doing Latin. So in one respect, you could say that classics actually kind of not saved my life. That's such a ridiculous. <laughs> that's such a ridiculous <laughs> exaggeration. God, there's uh, a there's a slogan they can use for university. A, a yeah. Classics <laughs> saved my life. Exactly. That's going to enhance our recruitment figures. Um, but classics certainly gave me a reason to be, I suppose, in a way that nothing academically had before. Mm. I think. A vocation. It, it absolutely did. Exactly. It really did call me in a way that no subject ever had, apart from perhaps playing the piano. Do you still play piano? Often? I do actually. I just started. Ta- I just started piano lessons again uh, a few months ago because I haven't played for about ten years, um, and I started taking it up again. And I'm really bad. 
Uh, I used to be quite good, actually. I, again, obsessive and self-taught. I started the piano when I was 14. I got this, like, shitty electric keyboard, you know, where they get the LED screen that shows the stave, and every time you hit a note, it goes, bang, and then it comes up on the screen. So I taught myself the keyboard um, when I was 14 with that, and then I started taking lessons, and I actually got rather good. I was doing my, I was doing my grade 8 just before I went to university, because I played for about six hours a day. But then I stopped playing completely when I went to university and then did my PhD and then worked on my postdoc. So I wasn't playing then either. But I've just started again and it's fabulous. It really is. I love Rachmaninoff, especially, and Beethoven. And I've been working on some Schubert recently as well. Nice. Yeah. Something to take your mind off of the the academic. I don't know, you always need something, don't you, that kind of just takes your mind and focuses on... Something else. I think exactly. we were talking about the other day. I've recently decided to buy a PS4 yes. just because I'm like, <laughs> the thing is, I like I watch a lot of things like films and stuff, but then I do find that I still end up like checking my email and stuff yeah. in it. I need yeah. actually something that I focus my mind on that yeah. I. I'm actually just doing yep. so I don't have to like focus on anything else and exactly. I think that's, that's very important to have but you're into like FIFA and stuff aren't you yep that must require yep. a lot of coordination well uh, I mean for me it's it's you know it's just natural but <laughs> 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 you know, I have a there's, there is a slightly also a slightly alternative reason as to why I bought the I was saying the other day it was partly I was having the conversation with Andy Gardner the other week for the mm. podcast about gaming the ancient world um, and I was saying about you know particularly now we're at the end of term like over the Christmas period it'd be nice to kind of focus my mind away when mm. I've got marking and stuff to do mm. and focus on but also the other big issue is that my friend from undergraduate who I lived with for a number of years who then about a year after he finished undergraduate has moved to China and he's lived mm. there ever since but he comes back for a few weeks every year we have a very 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 intense long lived FIFA rivalry and <laughs> currently he is one like we just pay up he comes back we end up spending spending a day playing FIFA and then whoever wins the most games obviously has got bragging rights for like the next year and he's gone back to China for the last three years running with the bragging rights which I'm <laughs> at a point now where I was like I can't deal with this anymore like I need to get up to speed I need to practice and it's, I need to be ready for when he comes back exactly um, that's that's what you can use your reading week next week for I suspect yeah uh, gaming friendships are really... I know this is slightly off topic, but I love gaming friendships as well. My friend Sarah, she's my brash American from Georgia, uh, and I met her in Glasgow while she was doing her master's and I was doing my PhD. And we both play games together every time we meet up, which is quite rarely. Um, but we can literally get on the computer, do something on multiplayer, and then three days later we'll emerge from her dining room like what have we been doing for three days? Like, literally square-eyed. It's it very special, though. I, I, I miss that quite a lot. I think computer games are a fantastic way to unwind, but they're also a really good way to learn stuff. They're a fantastic way to learn stuff. And, you know, our colleague Dunstan Lowe here at Kent does a lot of work um, on classics in computer games. And lots of my knowledge of, say, medieval history, because I really am quite interested in medieval history, literally comes from computer games. Um, you play Age of Empires. I don't. I did as a child. I played Age of Empires too. It was my first yeah, strategy game. Actually, that's two weeks on the bounce now. As we mentioned on the podcast, <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic. No, my, my really Europa Universalis Four is a very special special game to me. I must have clocked up like, oh my god! So you know, um, Steam it counts up the number of hours you spend on a game. I think I've spent about 1,000 hours on Europa Universalis Four, but I've learned a lot about the history of medieval Italy. So, okay. so there we are. There's nice benefits. I was saying this last week on the podcast, Handy Gardner, because 
with Age of Empires 2, I'd love the manual had a description under each unit and building, like yeah, an actual historical yeah. discussion of what it yeah. was. And I remember before even playing the game, like reading, going through yeah. those and reading them and being like, oh, this is so interesting. Exactly. So, yeah, it's... I suppose this really ties back into what we were discussing earlier about how how one actually gets into ancient history as well. Mm. I mean, computer games really were quite foundational in my interest in history as well and in ancient history too. Yeah. That's an e- definitely an extra. I can't believe I didn't mention it, but I think it's, I've only just really realised it through talking yeah. to you about computer gaming that it was really important to me and got me interested in history. That's something I think we should maybe should ask the students at some point. How many of them grew up playing things like Rome Total War? Oh my god, I ask them all the time. Assassin's Creed, <laughs> that sort of thing. Because imagine, it, but yeah, as you say, it does feed into it, like the interest. Because you're you're associating it almost, I suppose, subconsciously with something that you do for fun in your free time. Yeah. Um, and as such, you build up a uh, an enjoyment of it that then translates itself back into the academic sphere. Not that the academic sphere is enjoyable, but you know yeah. what I mean. Like We're talking about taking a break from it and focusing on something else, but then you enjoy doing that and then yeah. it kind of rebounds back in. So exactly. when you're growing up and you get home from school and you play, spend, like I don't know, like hours playing Age of Empires. Still in your school uniform. Yeah. Well. Um, and, but then you're like, oh, this is something I do for fun. And then suddenly you can go to university and actually spend your time just learning about that stuff that's in the game yes although it's so hard getting research time during the term anyway I mean I thought when I was kind of training up when I was doing my PhD I thought wow my god you know becoming an academic doing following your research all the time must be amazing fun actually in practice I don't know many academics who get much research done during the term time Mm. at all but yes I mean you could say that for me, computer games are a substitute for research at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, they are. I think I think that Oxford actually are doing something with computer games and classics at the moment. I'm fairly sure I saw advertised on Facebook that they're doing um, some kind of, perhaps even a module, or I'm sure it, I'm sure it's a module or a competition or something like that. They're really trying to engage students interested in computer games to think about ancient history and think about how computer games can be used to teach um, mm. teach not just ancient history but all manner of things and I think that's I think that's a fantastic part of their offer and it, um, it would be worthwhile for other universities to chase up as well yeah so it's something very interactive isn't it it's it's not just kind of passive learning it's very much your you are doing it exactly. like you're actually you know even though the, the whole questions about you know the reality or exactly. versus the actual what you're experiencing in the game, but even still you are actually investing yourself into doing it. Which are... Exactly. But one of the problems, I suppose, with using com- using computer games to teach ancient history would be that the questions that it would ask or the types of content that it would teach would be necessarily rather old-fashioned. Mm. Because imagine teaching a course via the medium of, say, Rome Total War Two or something like that, released a few years ago. Obviously, it was in a crap condition when it was first released. It was, it was patched to hell, and now it's playable. If I think about teaching a course on Roman history through that, say I wanted to teach about the Battle of Cannae, then, you know, we would line up all the troops when you get into the battle map, and then we'd take through the execution of the different steps and stages of the battle, and we'd teach about the organisation of the Roman Manipula Legion, and so on and so forth. And then when we get out of the battle, we'd be on the campaign map and we would be um, working on diplomacy or economy or developing provinces and building buildings and stuff like that. What we wouldn't be doing, actually, is looking at really much more modern questions about how people really lived mm. or about questions about um, equality and gender or about the conditions of slaves 
or even about broader socioeconomic socioeconomic questions as well, like questions about class, about status, um, for the Republic, particularly the organisation of the urban economy. Now, all of that would be pretty impossible to do in the kinds of computer games we have now. So in one respect, actually, the questions would be extremely old-fashioned, and I'm not sure I'd want to teach them. Yeah. Um, actually. I think just for an exercise, is good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it could, you could struggle beyond a module. I was just thinking to myself as well... Um, one of the best games ever, I still think, is Skyrim. Skyrim is really great in terms of, you think about it, you could start off by choosing to be a Nord, but then you can actually join the Imperial Army. Exactly. And it raises, like playing something like Skyrim and the choices you make is very interesting about those questions of identity. It, absolutely. And, like, in particularly what I teach Roman Britain, and I suppose wider questions about the Roman world, all the issues that surround things like Romanization, yeah. and, and do you, does somebody use Roman material culture because they want to be Roman? It's like, well, does yeah. everyone play Skyrim? And maybe you choose to be a Nord because they're really strong, but then you join the Imperial Army because exactly. of the benefits that it gives you but you don't actually want to be there because exactly. like, you, know, you can also join the Assassin's Guild and end up assassinating the Emperor at the end spoiler yeah. alert there but, uh, <laughs> it's an old game though yeah, so, I mean... although with my PS4 now I was like one of the first things I'm going to go out and buy is the remastered version because oh, I've only I used to have an Xbox 360 I've never played the remastered version of it mm-hmm. it's now like £15 in game and uh-huh. I was like I love how I, I get a PS4 and then I finally get a PS4 and the first thing I think to do is just go out and buy a game that I've already played before, yeah. but I can play the remastered version of it now. This actually takes me back to my gaming friend from Glasgow, Sarah, the the, the vulgar American, because she she would always pick a Nord character, and she is in fact doing Celtic and Viking archaeology. She's doing her PhD in Celtic and Viking archaeology, so she identifies very strongly with, I suppose, Nordic history, and she loves the Viking symbolism of these Nordic characters in the Skyrim game. I obviously picked an imperial um, because one, I'm interested in Roman history and I identify with it from from that that perspective. So we would have a kind of Nord imperial like mock argument from time to from time to time. You know, we'd call it out, oh, you bloody barbarian Nord, go away. <laughs> and she's oh, you stuck up imperial. Um, so I think it is true actually the way that we the kinds of characters we choose or the kinds of games we play they are very variously expressions of our interest and identity, but they don't necessarily. I think you're right. They don't mean that's what we want to. And I, I can see how I've never thought about this, but I can see how those kinds of mistakes of interpretation can get attached to objects. Um, and I understand you were talking talking about the interpretation of material finds with with Ellen in your podcast a few weeks ago, as well. And these are questions I don't have to deal with very much. But yes, just because someone is using a Roman coin, for example, in as a medium of exchange, doesn't mean they identify with the symbols upon it. For example, it, it's just silver. So actually, that kind of ties in quite quite well with another question that I'm quite interested about in your ideas about we mentioned this slightly earlier about outreach mm. and you were saying about I mean because you, you do a lot of work with schools I mean I, I suppose particularly in, in your case as well I know that you're quite keen in terms of um, public engagement in the local area because you're you're back in the area where you're from originally so exactly. uh, home is where the heart is um, exactly so what kind of thoughts do you have on that or what kind of experiences do you want to share? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm um, I'm from Ramsgate on the southeast coast of Kent and I moved away for 10 years to go do my undergrad PhD and then to go do uh, postdoctoral teaching as well. I'm probably the only academic I know that actually got a stable job back home. It is very weird coming home in many respects. But I really do want to use that as a way to reach out into the local area and particularly to bring classics and ancient history into schools uh, there are some fantastic initiatives going on for example edith hall at king's college london she has her advocating classics education initiative which is absolutely fantastic www.8classics.org and i think that 
the withdrawal of Latin and Greek from state education is a travesty um, because basically you nowadays for the most part you've only done Latin and Greek at school if you're from a, either from a well-off background or you were lucky enough to get a scholarship to a fee-paying school like Latin and Greek is a fee payers choice of school subject um, I teach in a Greek summer school a fantastic Greek summer school with the Joint Association of Classical Teachers and a very large proportion of our intake who have A-level Greek are necessarily and quite obviously from major public schools. And that's a very overrepresented cohort um, within classics, I think, quite generally as well nowadays. So in line with that, I mean, Rosie Wiles from Kent and I did a really, really fun Greece versus Rome debate um, at Norton Natural School in Ashford just a few weeks ago. And I took Rome, of course, and Rosie took Greece. So I was Boris Johnson and Rosie was Mary Beard. So that was that was a real pleasure doing that and really riling up this crowd of, of school children ranging from year seven right through to year 13 and giving them a taste of how how rowdy the Roman political arena could be. We Rosie and I were really actually going at each other in a very, very performative, very theatrical way. And we talked about coinage, we talked about art, we talked about portrait busts, we talked about the Fayum portraits found in Egypt. So, so special, so beautiful portraits. Uh, and, of course, about literature and architecture as well. And I think that for, for classics to survive as a subject in universities, we first need to tell students at school what classics actually is. Because I can tell you for a fact that I had never heard of classics before I started doing classical civilization A-level. And many of the kids I, I speak to as well don't know what classics is. Like, it's, it's not their fault, it's really our fault. Uh, and it's a problem with, I think, how outreach, outreach works, in fact. We need to be much, much more, not aggressive, that's not the right term, we need to be a lot more... Proactive? Proactive about outreach. Yeah, we don't want aggressive outreach. <laughs> that would be really quite horrid. We want, we want proactive outreach and we... Classics need... to save your life. Classic, exactly. Classics <laughs> save my life. It could do the same for you. Um, 50% off. Um, so, yeah, I think I, outreach is exceptionally important. And, I mean, I don't want to get all class warrior about it. I really don't. But I don't know why we have entered this rather noxious scenario where you can only do Latin and Greek as a school kid now if you're from reasonably privileged background or if you get a scholarship. And of course, whether you get a scholarship is also pegged really onto your being able to demonstrate that you're worthy for one. And that often depends upon your parents' level of education as well or upon the stability of your household. Um, you know, if you're from a, a council flat in Hackney and you're absolutely broke and one of your parents is in prison, you are probably not going to end up getting a scholarship to Eton. Um, your parents necessarily have to be alive to those opportunities and be able to give you a certain degree of stability so the whole the system generally actually of classics education uh, is in need of a major overhaul but it's not going to happen i'm afraid mm. so it's down to us and that's why i'm really passionate about it i really want kids to be able to get into this subject and you can do so much cool stuff i mean when i was doing my phd i was part of this literacy through latin program where we went into local primary schools to teach english grammar through latin and you can do so much cool stuff, particularly when kids are 10 years old. Like I went into one class 
and I opened this secret chest and I said, right, guys, I've got a surprise. And I'd made these tea bag scrolls. You know, the things you can do in like five minutes, you can make ancient scrolls with a tea bag or you can put them under the grill. And I rolled them all up and I got them to write um, letters from Pompeii about the eruption of 79 to write letters describing how they were feeling. And they just had to use a few, a, a couple of grammatical ideas that we were talked about, like conjugate a verb correctly in different ways or maybe use a few pieces of Latin vocabulary and there was a prize and they loved that of course for the best letter and that kind of stuff can be so exciting because it really it really tells a story to kids as well like getting them to imagine how they'd feel at Pompeii and write it all down on this on this scroll you know you get kids asking you questions like are these scrolls real sir and you go, no, no, you have to tell the truth. I made it. I made them at home. But you do kind of wish you could say, <laughs> yes, absolutely. If they were younger, I probably would have. But, yeah. but as it is, I. So outreach is very, very close to my heart. I don't actually like children. Um, <laughs> but, but I like the mission. And I think it's a very important one. Yeah, You can go in for like an hour or a couple of hours and then leave the school and then that's it. You're done. You're done. <laughs> yeah, but you feel shattered. Oh, yeah. One hour. Yeah. It's... Oh, God. Yeah. But I think I think teachers also like it as well because you come in basically and in that hour you are go, 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 go. You are talking for the whole hour. You are being really, really engaging. You're being super energetic, even more than you would be in a lecture actually. And you leave feeling so drained. And you think, how on earth do school teachers do this? Like, it is amazing. They are saints. Of course, I suppose teachers also during the day will say to kids, right, it's time for your quiet time. It's time for you to sit down and do your work on your own. Um, and I have things to do as well. Whereas when you're going in as an outreachy person, you're supposed to be the, the fun and excitement for the hour. You're the, you're, the, you're the clown in the best possible way. <laughs> of course. I so, kind of ties in towards my kind of final question I suppose really and that is about where do you see the discipline going in the future so you talked a lot there about outreach and the importance of it and how you don't think that classics is really necessarily going to change so it has to be us that take a proactive approach to mm -hmm. recruitment and mm -hmm. kind of energising the youth so to speak mm -hmm. um, about it but what more broadly do you think needs to be addressed mm -hmm. in terms of the study of ancient history, classics, etc. Um, well, firstly, just just as a slight aside, I suppose, I mean, really, it's university management um, that need to take charge of recruitment. And it is university staff who are paid to do that, um, to undertake those responsibilities. Otherwise, why? Otherwise, why have them? Um, there's been a lot of pressure on academics in various um, institutions recently, I've heard to uh, really do extra, do more, do more, do more recruitment work. And actually you think, well, why do you have recruitment officers? Why do you have strategists? Why do you have these aspects of your management team that you're paying very large sums of money to, if not to take the lead on directing recruitment? So I just, as a kind of prelude to what I'm about to say, I want to say, really, if, the, if universities are going to pay so much money to these people, then they need to actually go and get them to do the work rather than getting academics to do another job when academics on average work about 50 to 60 hours a week anyway. But where the subject is going generally, I mean, I do feel positive. I really do. I mean, there are fabulous people like Mary Beard and like Edith Hall and Andrew Wallace-Hadrill and Michael Scott. I mean, they are so visible and they are producing such good TV programmes. TV and uh, more so than radio is, 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 is the way to go. 
And some of their ancient history output has been so, so rich and so fun and so engaging that it's really brought put ancient history on the map. Mm. And recruitment, particularly if you think about Kent, has been buoyant in recent years. Um, Just a quick aside to that, though, where you say about TV mm. and the importance of that. Mm. I agree with that. But do you think as well, tying into what you're saying about enthusing younger people... Mm. Because in my mind, I think TV is actually to some extent a dying medium, or at least the TV as people have known it for many decades mm. is a dying medium. Mm. And now increasing attention is being shifted towards mm. online platforms, particularly mm. YouTube. Yeah. So it's things that can be watched or listened to mm. for a brief period of time that somebody can do over dinner, essentially, yeah. and then they quickly move on. But that's those are the things that really seem to... For reasons that I struggle to explain, that mm. seem to attract a lot of younger people. Do you think though there's 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 kind of an avenue there to therefore explore, like in terms of keeping ahead of the curve of where people are getting their information from about classics? Yes, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, necessarily many you know you get clips or snippets of TV programs that do end up on YouTube, mm. which can be super, which can be super helpful when the BBC isn't blocking those things, which it really is a mistake. I think, from their point of view, if the BBC have a Mary Beard documentary that's an hour, if someone gets a 10-minute clip of it and puts it on YouTube, BBC will block the content. That's actually a pretty bad mm-hmm. idea, in my view. Um, so I absolutely agree with what, you're, with what you're saying. I think, as academics, it would be good to do more short kind of youtube clips, and many universities do, do organise that. So at Kent, we have this fantastic Think Kent lecture series, which I'm going to be doing, I think, next year, where you get up and you give like just a 15-minute lecture. It's like a TED Talk. Like, like, exactly, precisely, it's like a TED Talk. And I'm really excited about doing, about doing that because those distill a lot of content in a very, very comprehensible way in 15 minutes, and they're supposed to make it fun as well. And So I think we really need to keep live to this. I mean, one could do vlogs as well. Personally, I'm never going to do a vlog, ever. No. Or... Some people get the misconception with the podcast when I talk about it. They ask me, do you film yourself? I'm just no. No, <laughs> no, 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 I don't no. know how people do that. No, um, but I mean, the, the idea of this medium is that people can listen to it on the move as well. They exactly. download it and listen to it on the move. But yes, yeah, so I still just carry on. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. I really enjoy listening to podcasts. I love audiobooks as well and stuff like that. I don't really watch any television, in fact. So mm. I do agree, in fact, a lot with what you were saying about YouTube and the like. But I think that for those who are interested, for academics who are interested, vlogging as well can be could be really, really helpful. Mm. And even, I, I know that Harvard, for example, has the fanta- this fantastic public lecture series uh, on YouTube. And it's not just a public lecture series, i.e. a once a week invited speaker. They literally record some of their lectures or whole courses and make them freely available on YouTube. So I got really drawn into a course on um, biblical historiography via Harvard. And I think I watched like 20 episodes of the lectures for that course. And I think that in the longer run, you know, if we're looking perhaps 20 years into the future, we may in fact see universities increasing on a subscription model where courses are delivered on kind of distance learning and you could almost subscribe to a course in the same way that I was watching that YouTube channel of Harvard University's course. You can now in some cases, can't you? They do those, I can't remember what they're called now, massive, I think I'm thinking massive multiplayer. That's the OU, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, the, that's um, It's the MOOC. 
Yes, that's the massive way online something course. Yeah. Do you think you'll move towards those those sort of models? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have yeah. absolutely no doubts about that yeah. whatsoever. Um, particularly as students nowadays. I mean, when I went to do my undergrad, um, I was paying one thousand eight hundred pounds a year. The fee is nine grand, and I do think that it is horrendously expensive. Uh, preachers of the choir here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, with a, uh, obviously, I mean, I, it's a little bit rude because naturally your listeners can't disagree with us. So um, we'll leave the politics there. Any any other kind of thoughts, though, more generally on, on, I mean, in particular in regards to your things like Cassius Dye or the study of the ancient history, any ideas about things that you'd like to see develop there at all? Okay, so I'm thinking about starting a undergraduate module in um, rhetoric. Okay. Um, called The Art of Persuasion, Rhetoric and Public Speech from Classical Athens to Trump. And I need to go and trademark it pretty quickly because I'm really excited about this undergraduate course. Basically, I'm thinking of this course which teaches students about persuasion and about how to use rhetoric to persuade, not public speech as such, that's oratory, but mm. rhetoric. So the art of persuading on paper using language to persuade. And my hope here is that we can revive a very old tradition of universities teaching rhetoric, which has died out, basically. I don't know, no university has taught rhetoric, surely, for hundreds of years. But I think that this is a really good way, this course, for us to teach students practical skills, that is, how to persuade and how to see through persuasion, through the medium of the ancient world. Because, of course, as we started out with our discussion most of the public business conducted in the ancient world is done through rhetoric and public speech. So I think that by turning to the ancient world, we can teach students about genuinely usable, genuinely transferable skills that they're going to need in life and that are useful from an employability perspective um, through the lens of the ancient world. And that's one of the ways I, one of the directions generally I think I want ancient history to go, to take ancient history not just as a subject in its own right, which it is, but also as a subject that genuinely does teach useful skills. Wow. Yeah. God, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited <laughs> yeah. about it. I need to go and write the module proposal. So obviously that will take about four years. Um, but I'm going to go and work on the module proposal for that, and I'm really excited about it. I can't wait to teach it. But the problem is I'm actually a really bad public speaker. So when I get up on stage... Um, in a lecture, for example, I get these horrible brain freezes and, you know, all the rest, and, and my mind goes numb. So I hope the students aren't going to be sitting there going, what the hell can this do teach us about public speaking? So I'm going to need to explain very clearly to them the difference between rhetoric and public speaking, um, because they are not the same thing. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I look forward to seeing it come to fruition, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So then just, just to finally round off then, I mean, I, I would say, is there anything that you really want to kind of sell at the moment? But there's the book. So the book! If you, want to, if you want to see where the book is online, is it Brill, the, the Brill website? Yes, it, just, is, it is. Can you just like chuck Cassius Dio? Indeed, the title of the book is Cassius Dio's Forgotten History of Early Rome. Uh, and yes, it's published with Brill. Is it actually? It's not out generally yet. You because you've just received a copy, so it would take a little bit more time for it to be. And no, it's out. Oh, okay. it is out. It was published on the twenty ninth of November, I think. Um, it is December. Yes, it's December now. Yeah. Oh God, in yeah. a couple of weeks till Christmas. Um, oh God. I've <laughs> <laughs> already my shopping yet. No, no, I haven't done any of mine. Literally, yeah. um, I I feel really bad. So I use Amazon way too much at Christmas, uh, and I feel really bad about it. But. Needs as must. I know exactly. Amazon is a really. I mean, they they 
they were onto something with that business model. I can see why it's grown so quickly. Yeah. Um, I can get what I want much cheaper and much more efficiently at much less effort on Amazon. And I can indeed sell my own products as well on Amazon. Um, Such as the book? Such as the book. (laughs) Well, I have got three copies from the publisher. So I could actually... It never struck me. I could actually sell one or two. But I'm not going to do that. One's for my mum, of course. And one's for a young colleague in Italy who wants a copy. So I said I'd send her a free copy. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay, all right. I think we're done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.